now an enchanting flute-like song comes from the woodland beyond. It is a wood thrush, and it sings in measured phrases, as though it had all the time in the world, and it invited one to contemplation, something like this. Would you live with me? Away high in a tree? I'll come right down and see. All right. Welcome to the show. You are listening to Bird Nerd. We are at Urban Engineers headquarters in Philadelphia. My name is Michael Mullen, and I'm here in the studio with David D'Alba. What's up? And our producer, Jess Wildstein, on the helm. She just waved. She waved. And we are doing this for the very first time, and this is our cold, cold start. This is the coldest start we can do. It's the first episode, and it's the first thing we're saying. Definitely, definitely. It's uh, finally warm out, though. So Yes, it is. It's a beautiful spring day here in Philadelphia. It's April... 10th? It's April... We're going to edit this in post. (laughs) It's April 12th. Thursday, April 12th. And you are listening to Bird Nerd. What is Bird Nerd? Dave, what's what's Bird Nerd? It's a great question. How did this come about? What's the story here? Well, I think I think to be fair, we should we should talk about you and and your interests in birds. That's fair because think, that's maybe how this started. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, a lot of this starts with, in my opinion, like when I when I first met you and you were uh, you started working at Urban, and there was this moment where you went to the window in this like touchdown type stance, you know, and and I was like, you know. It wasn't it wasn't football season though, and I was like, huh, what is what is Michael doing by the window there? And it really was what, what Michael was doing was he was looking out and he saw some hawks that happened to rotate a, around Independence Mall because we're so fortunate to have our building right behind Independence Mall. So right, we have this awesome view. Yeah. It looks all the way down to the Constitution Center, so we can see for acres, I would say. And yeah, so that was my first uh, episode where I got to see Michael's true interest in, in birds, and, it, and it's way more than hawks. It, it goes way beyond hawks. So I love birds. <laughs> Been called a bird nerd, actually. <laughs> we'll edit that out. I, I like it. I think, I think you should keep that. You gotta, it, we gotta say like, oh, we're gonna edit that out, but then we'll leave it all in. Okay. You know, because yeah. that's like, oh, then people feel like the curtain's been pulled back and they're right. like, wow, I'm really right. getting the inside scoop here. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, yeah. We don't actually edit anything. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave and I are video makers here at Urban Engineers and we have a company, uh, Urban Video Productions, and we've been fortunate enough to work with the Fairmount Waterworks on uh, bringing awareness to our watershed. Um, and made work for uh, the museum space there. And that's really where I think Dave and I found our common love for nature, uh, not only capturing it on film, but experiencing it. And uh, it was really cool. And really, I have to thank uh, David Dannenberg from our experience with Schuylkill Axe and Impacts. David Dannenberg is uh, a wonderful educator affiliated with Friends of the Wissahickon. He's a crew leader. He was part of the board for a long time. He's uh, just has a wonderful eye for conservation and has connected me with Jason, Jason Wexstein, the curator of ornithology from the Academy of Natural Sciences. 
Drexel University on the parkway. And Jason was really uh, generous with his time. He invited me over for a couple hours over an afternoon to show me some of the private collection and to talk birds with me. And uh, that's what we're here about today, to explore our conversation with Jason. And I'm going to kind of take you through it, Dave. Cool, cool. So, so who is Jason? So Jason, he is an associate professor in the Department of Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science, associate curator of ornithology, and overall cool guy. Um, so I did my PhD at LSU, and I did a master's at so Louisiana State University, which is a, um, it's a pretty famous program, actually, for museum-based ornithological research. So if you actually look across museums yeah. in the U.S., um, on average, you're going to find an L, a former LSU postdoc or a former, a former LSU PhD cool. that, have, that have those positions. Now, is that, like, ge- geographically inspired by, like, the bird populations there at LSU, or what is the tradition there? I just think, uh, you know, many, many years ago, it's, a very, it's actually a very young museum, especially in comparison to a place like the Academy, the American Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, the Academy is the oldest museum in the New World, so we're, we're an extremely old institution, have been doing this for a long time. Wow. LSU was a young institution. I don't remember exactly what year they started doing this kind of museum-oriented research, but a guy named um, George Lowry started doing this, you know, museum-based work. He was, a, he was an ornithologist and also did work with mammals and, you know, went all over the place collecting specimens and built that collection. Um, so it's just had a very strong tradition of field-based ornithological research. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it's attracted a lot of people because of that. Definitely. Yeah. So these are ancient species. They predate us in their evolutionary um, uh, uh, lineage. Is that accurate at necess- all? No, okay. no, not necessarily. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, it ranges the whole gamut, you know, right? So totally. we have, you know, this... You know, the general idea is that birds are kind of Cretaceous in origin. Mm-hmm. So the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, that's when sort of they, when birds really radiated. Now, there were birds before that, but they were really different than our birds now. And the reality is birds are dinosaurs. Yes. You know, so, um, you know, and dinosaurs predate humans. Humans were not on the planet when traditionally, you know, what we traditionally think of as dinosaurs were around. So, obviously, we were on the planet with birds, but... Yeah. So, with that in mind, with the birds being dinosaurs, um, I'm very curious as to know, like, what is cutting edge uh, in your field? You know, like, what are you guys going after? What is... Well, it depends on who you talk to. So, there are lots lots of hot topics, but... One of, the, one of the sort of hot methods that's being used now that has really revolutionized the kinds of questions that we can ask in ornithology is genome sequencing. So we can, we can use all this modern technology, you know, and, you know, we have specimens in our collection from John James Audubon that John James Audubon collected and some of his counterparts, Al, you know, Al, Alexander Wilson, um, a whole slew of people who, you know, were the, you know, kind of the fathers of North American ornithology. Um, when they collected specimens, they didn't think about all kinds of data that we think about now. Yeah. They obviously didn't know what DNA was, so they didn't collect specimens in a way that um, that optimally preserved DNA. So now when we collect specimens or when we take these salvaged specimens and prepare skins out of them that we put in the collection, we take a tissue sample and we put that in a minus 80 freezer, so we're preserving that. 
DNA in an optimal way to be able to get that data. But what's cool is we can actually get data out of these old specimens too. Wow. So the technology has gotten really good at dealing with very small fragments and basically old DNA is fragmented. And these, you know, one of the sequencing methods called Illumina sequencing is, is sort of optimal for little short pieces of DNA. Okay. Um, Which can algorithmically expand it or something like that? Or well, you can take so. these little short pieces mm -hmm. and then you can use, um, use pipelines um, and computationally put them together into a bigger piece. Okay. So we can, you know, we're, we're kind of decoding these little pieces and then you, you line them all up with each other and fit the puzzle back together. Now, cool. we don't always fit the puzzle back together to the end. It's not... In a lot, of, a lot of cases, the work that we're doing is the goal is not to reconstruct the genome. Mm -hmm. That's more difficult. You need some big pieces too, to scaffold those small pieces onto okay. to do that. But we are interested in getting what are, what are called contigs. Contigs are like smaller scaffolds of multiple pieces put together. And those allow us to reconstruct evolutionary history to some extent. So basically, DNA records evolutionary history. Mm -hmm. So as mutations accrue, that's recording evolutionary history. And we can use that to make inferences about how organisms have evolved over time. So, so we're doing that with birds. And we also do that in my lab with parasites. So we study the parasites that live on birds. So all these birds that we're preparing as specimens, we ruffle them for ectoparasites. When we're in the field, we dissect their insides to look for endoparasites, and we're also looking for malarial parasites. So even local birds here carry avian malarial parasites or relatives of avian malarial parasites. There are kind of three different kinds that we generally find in birds. Wow. Okay. And there are many, many species, undescribed even, that are sure. out there. Sure. So, yeah, I see parasite testing up on the board here. Yeah, that, that's actually... Um, Parasite is a database, so it's P-A-R-A -A with a capital S-I-T. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, so it's an online database for managing biodiversity data that relates host and parasite together and, and all the data um, surrounding those kinds of studies. Uh -huh. So host and parasite has a negative connotation in the layman's mind, but yeah. I think as biology... Like, for lack of better terms, uh, evolves. It like we understand that these relationships are like uh, are not as simple as black and white. Right. Kinda. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like well, we consider our bodies without bacteria, and I've heard this before. Like it's like imagining a house without nails. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. Um, yeah. So I mean, almost a better word to call these things are symbionts because. Yeah. Cool. So basically, you know, symbionts are things that have an association with some other organism positive or negative. Mm -hmm. A parasite, by definition, is something that has a negative impact on its host. And the reality is a lot of organisms that we consider parasites, so lice, if you had a, a single head louse on your head, it's not going to kill you. Right. might make your head a little itchy, you know, but that's it, yeah. <laughs> you know. So um, is it a parasite? Now, if you had enough lice on your head, you know, maybe it would cause, I mean, the reality is head lice aren't deadly. Um, they're annoying, gross, you know, you can call them all those things. Now, body lice could be deadly. They can carry nasty diseases. Huh. But the bottom line is a lot of these things are sort of, it's a matter of scale. If you have a super bad infection of a given parasite, it could kill you. If you have a mild infection, probably won't kill you. Mm -hmm. So it's not really, like, when I think about birds and their so-called parasites, um, basically most of a given population of hosts is uninfected or has very low 
intensity infection, so very few parasite individuals living on them, and a very small number of individuals have a lot of parasites, and those are the ones that are having the negative effect, not everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's it sort of ranges the whole span of variation out there. Because it's um, easier for the parasite to proliferate in a smaller pro population because there is, there is like bridge or something like that, maybe? I don't know. Not, not necessarily. I mean, I guess as a parasite, if you kill your host, you right. just wiped your habit. It would be like us destroying our planet, right? We destroy our planet, we're okay. a host, right? Yeah, yeah. If a parasite kills its host um, and can't quickly transmit to a new one, mm -hmm. you know, so there's this whole, um, you know, there are lots of ideas about sort of virulence and this ability to transmit and, you know, there's the ability to transmit and then whether or not you kill your host. Um, and if you if you kill your host more quickly than you can transmit to the next host individual, then you're not going to be successful. Yes. There's, wow, that's full allegory right there. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. that's a hotbed of <laughs> philosophy, I think. <laughs> I like that. Um, so, so the virulent um, nature of a parasite is, um, it, it, that's part of its evolutionary history, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's part of its evolutionary history. It's part of, you know, there's a whole, there are lots of different factors that, that come in, like a parasite that's not virulent in one host might be super virulent in another host that's a naive host. So um, this has all kinds of implications for avian evolution, too. If you have closely related species that come into contact and one has a parasite that the other is naive to, you know, it can actually cause all kinds of really weird um, dynamics that kind of happen in nature so like we we often have like closely related things live next to each other like this mm -hmm. so um, one example that we're working on here in pennsylvania is black cap chickadees and carolina chickadees they're common feeder birds and carolina chickadees and black caps have a hybrid zone here in pennsylvania and a colleague of mine at villanova has been studying these for years and that hybrid zone between those two species is moving north slowly but surely and one possibility is that it's because one of the species is passing on pathogens to the other one, and the other one's kind of naive to those pathogens. So it's mm. causing a demographic problem. It's causing populations of that other species to, you know, to get knocked back because of disease, essentially. We don't know if that's true, but we're studying that to figure out if that's what's going on. Wow. Very so, interesting. Yeah. There are lots of parasites have lots of implications when it comes to host biology. Is there, is there any kind of, like, human element to, to like, the participation of that? Um, in the spreading or you proliferation, mean causing that hybrid zone to move and that disease. Well, there there is a human element in some systems, not mm -hmm. necessarily this one. Although there may be here, we just don't know. I mean, the reality is we know so little about most parasite yeah kind of communities mm -hmm. that um, there are very few places on Earth where we can say we know all the parasites that are here. This is what they are, and you know what's weird is our own backyard is almost less studied than you know, little points in the Amazon basin where we've done, you know, more detailed surveys. Um, like you know, we're, we're doing surveys here, but it would be good to do more and find out what's out here. Um, it's a lot like, it's a lot like going to Mars, you know. Um, you know, we always, people always talk about like, oh, if we discovered life on Mars, we'd all want to go there and figure out what it is and characterize it. But there's a lot of unknown life here on our own planet. And that's what museums are really good at doing is going and, and characterizing and studying that diversity. So... That's what we're doing with birds and their parasites in, in lots of different places on the globe, and hopefully more here as well as, um, you know, in other countries. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think where I was going with that, though. Um, 
Oh, yeah, you were asking about like situations where humans played a role. So Hawaii is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. So Hawaii has long been known to have, you know, all kinds of interesting endemic birds. So there's this whole radiation of honey creepers, which were related to finches, like our goldfinch here. Mm -hmm. These are things that arose from some ancestor, a finch-like ancestor that flew to the Hawaiian Islands, became sort of trapped there. And, you know, it must have been enough individuals that, you know, they were able to proliferate. And because Hawaii was sort of a blank slate, you know, created by volcanoes, um, there were all these open niches. So these Hawaiian honey creepers diversified, and they have all kinds of different bill morphologies. Some are nectar feeders. You know, some f probe into, you know, the bark on trees. Some are kind of traditional finch-like, you know, birds with their bills. And the bottom line is they're all related to finches. And this happened very rapidly. Um, but when things get to islands like that, they often get to islands without the parasites or pathogens that were originally on the sort of source population. And this is called missing the boat. So these parasites missed the boat to these places. And birds on the Hawaiian Islands were not exposed to avian malaria, basically, over long periods of evolutionary time. And as a result, their immune systems had not evolved in concert with malarial parasites. Well, eventually, humans brought mosquitoes and malaria, and not human malaria, we're talking avian malaria, yeah. all kinds, and they're, like I said, there are three different genera, but in this case, they're, they're particular, there's a particular species of plasmodium, so the same genus that infects humans, but a bird-specific um, species of plasmodium. Basically, humans brought that to the Hawaiian Islands. There were also lots of introduced birds brought in, mm -hmm. and this basically spread this plasmodium to the native Hawaiian birds and actually caused many to go extinct. Wow. So, they filled, like, every biodiverse corner. Right, of many of them. I mean, there were geese that did this. So there, were, oh, cool. there was a radiation of geese in the Hawaiian Islands, so there are all these fossils. We know, so we know from these fossils that there were a bunch of extinct geese as well. Now there's only the nene, which is a, an endemic goose. There's a, you know, there are, there are a bunch of endemic lineages. There's a, a hawk, Io, the Hawaiian hawk. There's Hawaiian short-eared owl. So a bunch of island, you know, things that came from mainland sources colonized Hawaii, and then in many cases diversified. The honey creepers are one of the big radiations, and they're one of the ones that got knocked back got heavily got it. by avian malaria. Hmm. Yeah. Is there a radiation happening now of a certain species? You know, it's hard to measure these things in real time. Right. Um, we like definitely see, so, you know, this is this, there's this whole idea in evolutionary biology that we, you know, we sort of have two things. We have what's called macroevolution and microevolution. So macroevolution is, you know, speciation. It's, um, you know, the, it's speciation, whereas microevolution is the process that leads to that speciation. So it's the, you know, sort of the diversification at the population level that ultimately leads to speciation. That's micro. Yeah, that's microevolution. So those two things are sort of tied together. Is microevolution happening? Absolutely. We can see lots of that happening. And you can see it in a matter of generations in a laboratory. You can run experiments that, that allow you to see traits change over time in a very rapid way. Um, and we can definitely, you know, Hawaiian honeycreepers are an example, something that happened rapidly. Darwin's finches, um, it's debatable whether they're actually multiple species. Um, uh -huh. so some of the things that are considered multiple species, if we look at the genetics, it turns out that they're not really, um, they're not showing the kinds of genetics that we would, ex genetic patterns that we would expect of different species. But we do see lots of microevolution. We see mm -hmm. 
you know, one year when there's an El Nino, we see bill sizes changing. We see two different bill sizes in the population. Um, and then um, when conditions are different, we may see one bill size being favored. Um, you know, natural selection acting on populations. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So you're a biologist first? Or yes. Yes. You're well, I mean, as a, as a curator, I am a biologist. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's what my training is in. Cool. Yeah. And so you... How, how do you how do you look at the parasites versus the birds? Like how do you weigh? Uh, like, Which is more important to me? Yeah, like this, have you become I mean, an entomologist through the process? A, a little bit. Like, I mean, in love with this? so I mean, sort of the principal group of parasites that I study on birds happen to be insects. So they're parasitic lice that live on the feathers, believe it or not. Okay. But there also are mites and ticks, and those are not insects; they are arthropods. And I don't know as much about those groups. Right. Um, but lice, I've done a lot of work on what's called coevolutionary biology. So we build evolutionary trees, which are like genealogies. It's just like your family tree, but instead of being a tree of relationships within a family, it's a tree of relationships between different species. Yes. So like I said, the DNA records evolutionary history. We can use that to build a tree of the hosts, so in this case, a group of birds. And we can do the same thing with the parasites that live on those birds, and then we can compare those to understand essentially whether or not the parasites are speciating in response to host speciation events. So does divergence happen in the parasites as it happens in the birds? So are the, are the trees mirroring each other, kind of? Totally. So uh, what I really wanted to do with this episode, David, was provide a little bit of a doorway for people who aren't necessarily bird nerds. So that would be somebody like me? Someone like you. I, uh... I want to. I want to inspire the bird nerd within all of us. You've done that. You've you've definitely brought me to a different level of bird nerd. I'm not quite <laughs> full blown bird nerd, but I have much greater appreciation now that I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years. That's good to hear. So yeah, I really wanted to provide uh, some access to the beautiful world of birds, especially here in the city of Philadelphia, where you wouldn't necessarily think of it as. Uh, a birding hotspot, but there's actually a lot going on here that I want to illuminate for people. Um, so I brought this up with, with Jason. I really wanted to know about the falcons and the birds of prey because I think they're the coolest and I just think it's a really easy way for people to be uh, kind of swept up in the majesty of the world of birds. These are, these are dinosaurs and uh, the Academy of Natural Sciences is a, is a museum of dinosaurs and uh, they are living amongst us still. Like peregrine falcons, red-tailed hawks that are nesting in the city. Cooper's hawks <clears> nest in the city. right. You know, Cooper's hawks are kind of, they become, I mean, Cooper's hawks used to be not so common right. in this, you know, in city environments or, or urban environments, suburban environments even, but they've become common. Mm -hmm. So they, they've somehow adapted to not having all that many trees and they do pretty well. And I see Cooper's hawks out my window all the time. Yeah. Occasionally peregrine falcons um, and red-tailed hawks all the time. Red-shouldered? No, not no, here. Okay. I see those like at my house. I actually, I I live up in Wynwood, and um, and I actually get pretty good hawk migration by my house. So, in fact, last Friday was a northwest wind, and and I had sharpshin hawks and Cooper's hawks and red-tailed hawks streaming over, and I had one red-shouldered hawk out there, and um, that day, and I'm trying to think what else. You know, black vultures, turkey vultures. Mm -hmm. um, black vulture is one that sort of moved north into this area um, in the last, you know. 20 years or so. I see a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. They used to not be so common this far north. Hmm. Um, and I get eagles flying over my house too. I didn't on Friday, but it was a good day. I was expecting to see one. But, yeah, yeah. Um, That's awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, there are eagles around the city. You know, we have eagles nesting in Heights National Wildlife Refuge. Now, they're, they're not nesting in the city, right. but they're nesting on the edge of the city. Right. Uh, pretty close to the airport. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So in terms of shaping yeah. things, I, you know, they eat other birds. Right. Um, I'm guessing that they eat other birds in some cases. In other cases, they're eating squirrels and rats. It depends on which hawk you're talking about. So... Cooper's hawks and peregrines are bird eaters for the most part. Yeah. And um, red tails are more mammal eaters, although they'll eat pigeons and things when they can get their talons on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I know red tails have nested on the Franklin Institute, um, mm-hmm. but I think lately they've been nesting in trees, maybe between the Franklin Institute and the Art Institute. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but somewhere over that way there's a nest. And peregrines were kind of brought in. So the interesting thing is peregrines, mm-hmm. there, were, there was an eastern subspecies of peregrine that was native to eastern North America, and I think there's a lot of debate about, um, you know, in general, North American peregrine falcons are cliff nesters. If you go to other places like Australia, peregrine falcons that live in Australia actually are tree nesters. Um, And um, basically, North American peregrines were nearly wiped out in a lot of ways by DDT. Just like ospreys were reduced in numbers, so DDT caused eggshell thinning and all these things. And it was actually museum collections that led us to discover that. Can you explain that? Yeah, so basically in museums we also have eggs that, you know, it it was actually a very traditional thing that people interested, you know, natural historians, people interested in in nature would go out and collect eggs, you know, which seems sort of of horrible and gruesome and not very good for bird populations. (laughs) Um, and in some cases, probably wasn't good for bird populations, but in small numbers, it, you know, it's sustainable like anything, right? Um, but bottom line is, in collections, there were um, eggs of peregrine falcons pre-DDT, and then eggs after DDT when peregrines started going down, ospreys started going down, eagles started going down in population size. And, and researchers noticed that there were differences in the thickness of the eggshells, and then actually used the eggs to actually measure that. And, and found out that in fact this was you know there was a correlation between DDT and eggshell thinning. Wow! So that's very interesting. Um, someone uh, at the academy, not not to derail this, but uh, something about the freshwater mussels and their shells not um, having enough calcium uh, carbonate in the um, in the water to uh, like okay. form denser shells was like why. A oh, why of, some of these populations? Yeah. Tanked. Yeah, so I'm just that's an interesting parallel there. Would that be calcium in the Yeah, it would it would be calcium. I don't know exactly what DDT does that doesn't allow that calcium to deposit, but basically, you know, the way in, the way things work in a bird's ovary is, you know, the egg obviously is not shelled initially, right? It gets fertilized and then it travels down the oviduct and then eventually, you know, that yolking egg becomes becomes shelled. So, you know, if it doesn't get shelled thick enough, mama sits on it or dad sits on it and it gets crushed. So, hmm. And that's not so much a problem anymore? No, it doesn't seem to be a problem anymore. Um, you know, in local peregrines, that it, you know, basically what happened was people said, okay, we want to bring peregrines back. Now, there were some not very careful things that went on. You know, so one of the fields of research that I'm part of, is it's called systematics. It's basically... It's the study of taxonomy of birds, but also their evolutionary relationships and sort of biodiversity, like how many species or how many lineages or how many subspecies are there. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that peregrine falcons had many different subspecies, and peregrine falcons are pretty interesting because they're found all over the world for the most part, 
And some parts of the world there are migrant populations. Some parts of the world there are resident populations that don't migrate. Hmm. So you know, you go to Peru, and there are peregrine falcons that don't migrate. It's a specific subspecies called Cassini, and it looks different. Um, and some of these populations may or may not be genetically different, right? And if they're, you know, the bottom line is, um, even within the United States, we have named subspecies. So there's one in the tundra called Tundrius. And if you go to Cape May now, there are lots of birds that will migrate through during September in particular. September through kind of mid-October is peak time. And I was there in the middle of October one day, and, you know, we saw 20 or 30 peregrines go by, wow. you know, without even trying. It was just sort of everywhere we stopped, we saw a couple peregrines zip overhead. And um, most of those birds are migrants that are going coming from further north. So they're they're tundra nesting birds. They nest on cliffs in the tundra, and they migrate through and winter in the southern U.S. or even into South America. And um, the bottom line is, our resident ones were wiped out by DDT. Right. The northern ones were not wiped out by DDT, although I suspect their their populations did drop because I think there was a time when seeing peregrines at a place like Cape May. Um, wasn't so easy. Like the, even during migration, they didn't come through in as big a numbers as they do now. So I think banning DDTs had a good influence, not only on our local birds, but on even birds coming through. Bottom line is that people didn't really take into account all these different subspecies and these different, you know, like the Northwest has this thing called Peel's peregrine falcon, which is very dark and has a very dark hood. So what they used, you know, what they used was birds that were in captivity and they had birds in captivity of sort of, you know, various populations all bred together, kind of these mutt peregrines. Yeah. So those are the birds that have been reintroduced in the cities. And and I sort of hesitate to say reintroduced because in some cities, like uh, where I was living before this, um, in the city of Chicago, we had a lot of peregrines. And the reality is Chicago probably never had resident peregrines. It doesn't have cliffs unless they nested in trees, which I don't think that subspecies did do. I think it nested mostly in cliffs. So probably... In a sense, they're almost an introduced species. Right. So, now, are they cool? Yes. yes you know, right. it's great to see peregrine falcons. And, you know, here we do have cliffs and rocky ledges. And um, so they were native to this region. Um, did they nest in Philly itself? I don't know. But we're, we're, you know, providing this extra, you know, habitat for those those individuals. So that's, that's cool. So the buildings become cliffs. Exactly. Yeah, the buildings are cliffs. So basically what... what um, because peregrines were something that falconers were interested in, people knew how to breed them in captivity, so they bred them in captivity and then used this, this technique called hacking, where you put a box out, you put the baby bird in the box, you supply it with food, and it kind of imprints on an area and then comes back to that area. Mm. And it's not 100% foolproof. Sometimes birds born in one place move on to another place, but it worked well enough that it created nice populations of peregrines in lots of cities. And peregrines are, you know, pretty easy thing to see. I mean, I've seen them from my house, you know, the park near my house, and they're that they're a local nesting pair, probably from Maniunk, that fly across the river sometimes to hunt. Cool. But um, what, what what kind of population densities are there of peregrines? I mean, th they seem very territorial. Yeah, I I can't answer that question absolutely. So. Um, I can put you in touch with the person who can answer that question, who is, um, he's, um, he works for Pennsylvania Fish and Game, and, um, and basically has been involved with the hacking, and he bans all the young, and actually my postdoc, Therese Katnack, who, um, who was a falconer, um, and 
uh, studied birds of prey and parasites of birds of prey. She's gone out on some of the banding trips with them. Cool. And I know that there's several pairs in the city. There's at least one here in Center City. There's one in Maniunk. There are one or two on the various bridges over the rivers. Right. Um, I can't remember. I think I can't remember if Ben Franklin Bridge has one. It's the Walt Whitman for sure. Yeah, yeah. Walt Whitman is one of them. Yeah. So I, I guess I mean that's at least three pairs, but there may be more too. Mm-hmm. So they'd be pairs with presumably some young that yeah every spring they would have young and, and the young move on where yeah they just disperse they just disperse yeah they go to other places because and, and claim some territory yeah exactly yeah. yeah they get kicked out yeah and they're all you know because the young are all banded and they're banded with color bands um there's probably some good data on where the the pennsylvania ones have gone and and, and those are recited. the gps um enabled or something no. no 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 it's just that people can see them so I that's a go. totally different thing you can do that mm-hmm. um but it's expensive yeah. so it's it's so rfid uh is that uh, something else um you, you can use, use rfids but those would you'd only use those for birds that live in like nest holes you can put them outside of nest boxes or birds that come to feeders because right. then you have the sensor on the feeder or on the box and it tells you who's going in and out yeah so in this case um there are different kinds of of tracking devices that you can put on birds. Bigger birds, there are more options. Smaller birds, there are fewer options. So smaller birds, smaller birds at this point, there are sort of two options. One are little nanotags. Mm-hmm. And nanotags rely on towers. And the state of Pennsylvania now has like a fence of towers across the state, but it's not a comprehensive array yet. Okay. So the, uh, Ontario, Canada has a comprehensive array. So towers that are basically all near enough that they can really, in a detailed way, track where a bird is going. Mm-hmm. With a fence, you know when it passes the fence, but you don't know where it goes after that, um, unless there's another tower south where it goes. So if you want like really fine-grained details, um, that may not answer your question, Yeah. but there are things that can, that can answer. So if you have a bird that you can recapture, you can put um, two different kinds of devices, either of these things called light-level geolocators, which use mm-hmm. sunrise and sunset times to tell, uh, to, to basically estimate where uh, the bird is at a given time. Mm-hmm. Or um, there are also GPS locators now, too, that, are, that small perching birds can get, you know, strapped onto them. They kind of use these little, uh, it's hard to even describe, like a little kind of, it's like a little harness that goes around their legs, and okay. and then this little antenna hangs out the back end, and um, basically the bird wears it for a year, wow. and and you you know you have to do this with birds that are what are called phylopatric birds that come back to either their breeding or wintering site. Um, okay, well, are most city birds phylopatric? Not necessarily. It depends. So, you know, peregrine falcons often come back to their nests. But catching adult peregrine falcons is tricky. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. To exactly. circle back. I mean, you have to do it with a special kind of trap. I mean, usually the adults are banded as young, and they don't catch them again. Wow. Uh, you know, unless they fly by like a you know a raptor banding station where they lure them in. They use a dove to lure them in. Often. Oh, really? Yeah. That's um, cruel. Yeah, it doesn't actually kill the dove necessarily. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, it can happen, but yeah. <laughs> often the dove is protected. Okay. Um, so it, it depends on what kind of setup they're using to, right, right. to catch them. But so you know, so these particular peregrines around the city are not being tracked, but right. they could do it. And those they can use. I, I think peregrines are big enough that you can actually put um, a satellite or a um, 
um, a cellular phone system. It's, it's it's like a there's a there's actually a company in New Jersey and Cape May called Cellular Tracking Technologies that okay. designs. Um, tracking systems that use the cell phone system. So even if it was an Arctic peregrine falcon that goes well beyond the cell phone system, it still records data using GPS, but then it comes down to the cell phone area and then dumps its data via cell phone. Cool. So it's, it's a little cheaper to dump it via cell phone than it is to dump it via satellite. It's slower sense. and more expensive because you have to pay for data on the satellite and you have to pay for your your um, transmitter and these transmitters are thousands of dollars. Wow! And the data is you know fifty bucks a month, so <laughs> yeah. it adds up to a lot of money fast. Wow! It's yeah. amazing how much most people don't know. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, like I walk around my neighborhood. I walk to work with. I always have a pair of binoculars in my backpack, and you know, I'm always because I'm a natural historian. Like uh, that is, you know, I'm always looking around and noticing what's out there. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I tell my neighbors, yeah, I saw a bald eagle yesterday. Yeah, I've seen them a bunch of times over my house, you know. And the same is true. You know, I've seen like a hundred species of birds over my yeah. house, close to that. And you know, and it's it's amazing if you put the effort in and you yeah. keep your eyes open, what you'll see. And that's the essence of it, Dave. It's just it's amazing what you'll see if you keep your eyes open. I just want to thank everyone for joining us on Bird Nerd this episode one. This is really exciting, a little bit scary, but we're gonna keep doing it. We're gonna keep having guests on. We're going to keep exploring our environment and hopefully uh, get people engaged. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. This is going to be great. Yeah. Thanks for joining me here, Dave. Thank you for having me. This is brought to you by Urban Video Productions and Urban Engineers in Philadelphia. Please visit us on the web at urbanengineers.com blog. 